Welcome to the Urban Insight Podcast from Suico. Welcome to Urban Insight. Today, we're looking at how cities need to meet the challenges of climate change and at the same time be healthy places to live. Because there's a big link here. The hotter the city, the higher the health risks. But first, let's look at what cities can do to mitigate climate change. Cities account for 70% of the world's global emissions, and they're now being hit by the effects of climate change in the forms of flooding and other problems. So joining me to get the ball rolling is Suico's Head of Sustainability, Andreas Yelenhammer. Andreas, let's get straight into it and, and look at the zero emissions perspective. What do we have to do to rebuild our cities so that they're in line with the Paris Climate Agreement? Well, first, let's let's acknowledge that the Paris Agreement is actually a climate treaty agreed upon between nations, and, and there is actually no mentions at all on, on cities within the agreement. However, as you said, cities are really vital in order to reach the goals in the agreement, and, and cities are very much present at the climate negotiations, and they are regarded as an important stakeholder. And I think if you look at the Paris Agreement on mitigation, the mitigation part, we, we have agreed upon a maximum of two degrees warming with efforts on limiting it down to 1.5. And and this roughly translates to cities to, to cutting emissions by half to 2030 and, and reaching net zero by 2050. And this is also where a lot of large cities are aligning their goals at uh, currently. And to rebuild a city that cut emissions by half to 2030, that is, well, it's simply not possible, I would say, the, the easy answer, because building a city has a much longer time frame. But the main share of a city's building stock and infrastructure that exists today, it will exist in 2050. But there is good news, and, and we should not only talk about building a city, but also how we run it. And there, there you find the answer. And that is where we have the largest emissions, and we can cut them much quicker. So powering a city takes energy, and, and let's look no further than energy, because energy in cities goes mainly into heating, cooling buildings and, and mobility. And that is where we can decarbonize the lion's share of emissions. Public transport, electric vehicles, also means that we need to design city life to promote biking and walking. And that is what we see happening in cities today. I think the the main challenge for cities is to design for a decarbonized lifestyle. So people live a a kind of a good life that involves a lot of consumption and and flying in in vacations and so on. And that is where cities are struggling in in designing for for a, a decarbonized lifestyle. But can they do it? I mean, can we can we really make cities then net zero? Well, it's totally possible. We see that it can be done. Uh, the the main challenge is in the the rate of speed that is needed. Uh, Paris Agreement say cutting in half by twenty thirty, and that is really uh, we need to look for another uh, speed lever that we haven't found yet. And I think the answer lies in digitalization because we see what digitalization is doing in other industries, in 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 media and in in music. It it really kind of disrupts the the, the usual laws of how things work and uh, with digitalization we can here find new ways of, of uh, optimizing flows and, and finding the best routes and, and uh, optimizing use of buildings so and, and these are quick and easy to scale and, and also copy between cities. Now we have this other aspect and that is with all cities they're going to have to manage the effects of climate change because you know the climate is changing regardless and we're seeing uh, fires we're seeing floods we're seeing all these you know, you know natural disasters occurring so how can we adapt our cities to manage these effects of of climate change what's needed 
Uh, the the best way to start thinking about this, uh, I think, is to say that cities today are adapted to to climate. They are climate adapted, but to the old climate, so to say. And we are now moving into a newer climate. So we need to think about all our systems and structures there. And and the cities need to be able to take a punch or two and, and be resilient towards extreme weather, as you said. And that means heat, stress, flooding, draft, etc. And and cities can think in, in terms of colors here, in green and blue. Uh, those are the ones being best successful. I mean, green means parks and trees that can evaporate excess heat and provide shade and, and lower uh, urban heat. And, and blue means a city that can work like a sponge city. It can capture and retain water in its system. And, and the trick is to design areas that can function as uh, overflow magazines, for example. So when the rain comes, it shouldn't uh, wreak havoc with, with all the, the city's functions. Because this kind of leads us on to the next question that I had, which was, you know, how can we make sure that these cities, when they do have to get redesigned for climate change, how can we make sure they're healthy places to live and work? And it sounds like green and blue cities are healthy places to live and work. Yes, they are. And luckily, I I think to adapt and decarbonize a city is by no means a contradiction. And we can also see that these measures lead to a more livable city. A uh, city with decarbonized transport systems, for example, they, they have a high degree of walking and biking, and that means health and translates into public health. Lots of parks and trees, they, they lead to, to nice recreational areas at the same time as they provide resilience against extreme weather. Uh, the, the trick here is, is that you need a new kind of cooperation between different city departments, and you, you cannot uh, work in silos to achieve uh, this uh, combination of, of sustainability and, and climate adaptation. I think uh, you need common goals, of course, and, and to collaborate. But the solutions are there, we see them, and, and I think we will hear more of them today. And we certainly will hear more examples in a bit because we're heading to Brussels now and the European Commission. They've launched a new initiative to create 100 climate neutral cities by 2030. Now, you'll remember Andreas Yellenhammer just there. He was optimistic about reaching these climate goals, but thought that having emissions in cities by 2030 was almost impossible. So how will you create 100 completely climate neutral cities in the same year? (laughs) Well, it is ambitious, self-consciously so. That's Matthew Baldwin. I am Deputy Director General in the European Commission in the Mobility Department. Now, Baldwin is also the man in charge of the 100 Climate Neutral Cities mission. I should point out that he cycled to a studio in Brussels for this interview, so he's walking the talk, or cycling the talk in this instance. But but let's step back here, uh, Colm, a little bit. We've got this thing we call the European Green Deal, which is setting us out to be the first climate-neutral continent by 2050. We've set a binding EU climate law, which binds all of our member states to achieve a 55% reduction in our greenhouse gases by 2030. And so, yes, it's ambitious, but so is the European Green Deal. Um, and how are we going to do it? Well, we've asked them. Uh, we've put out a call for expression of interest. Um, we've currently over 200 cities expressing interest in, in terms of pre-registration, and we're reaching out to them to answer any other questions they have about how to come into the program. It is very ambitious. It's hard to get all the way to climate neutrality. I think if it wasn't difficult, we'd have already done it. It's also very expensive. Many cities have told us they want to go further and faster on climate neutrality, but they face barriers. The operational 
capacity uh, within a city isn't always up to this difficult task, finding the necessary funding and finance. So um, it is a big challenge, and that's why we've decided to go with this new beast, this Horizon Europe mission to get to 100 climate neutral and smart cities. So I've, I've got a lot of things to unravel from that question. First, first of all, you've mentioned operational challenges. Explain that one in detail. Some cities will be able to do that easier than others, presumably because of their infrastructure, or how exactly will this work? Well, part of it is, is sometimes the, the sheer difficulty of achieving it. Uh, you're tied into an energy source which can't deliver climate neutrality by, by 2030. Um, uh, to that extent, cities like Copenhagen, who've set up district heating systems and they're plugging new things into that, like biomass and in the future renewables, that's a, that's a doable thing. Uh, in other cities, the issue is refurbishment of buildings, uh, big building stock, um, reducing the, uh, uh, the inefficiencies, if you like, in, in the building to, to, to make it um, uh, better insulated. Um, so these are the kinds of technical questions. But also, if you think of a big city, um, size of Brussels or larger, size of Stockholm, there's quite a lot of operational issues. You've got the mobility department, which is doing its thing, the energy department, which is doing its thing. And the key thing about this project is bringing everything together into a holistic program aimed at achieving climate neutrality. Um, but it's not all cost, if I could point out. I mean, when when cities do this, and there's a number of cities uh, really moving towards climate neutrality, what they're noticing is they're able to realize a fantastic amount of what I call co-benefits. So better air quality, less congestion, fewer deaths from road crashes, lower energy bills, better energy security. And these are the things which enable you to really get through to citizens and say, this is something worth doing. So what you're saying really is that if we aim for this ambitious goal of climate neutrality by 2030, then we're likely to have that knock-on effect of, of citizens' health and well-being in, in most cities as well. It's, it's what I call the miracle of climate change and tackling it, uh, that in, in the same policies that will, re, will deliver that, if, for example, on mobility, reducing our dependence on privately owned, conventionally fueled cars in cities, will inevitably increase uh, or improve our air quality, will reduce the number of deaths and serious injuries we get in road crashes if we have fewer cars, will certainly reduce our congestion. Uh, so this is the, the, the lucky break, if you like, that the things we have to do in this existential challenge to save the planet are also the things that will bring us more livable, more lovable, literally greener cities that we all want to see. So less of this... And more of this. Is this an overly optimistic view? Can the threat of climate change also be the catalyst for healthier cities? Well, we talked to somebody who knows an awful lot about urban health. So my name is Matilda van den Bosch and I'm a researcher at the Barcelona Institute for Global Health. Van den Bosch was in fact a medical doctor first, but moved to research into urban health as she felt that if cities were designed better, she could have a bigger impact and help more people. The, the, the problem, as I saw it while I was working there, that was, was that most of my patients uh, that I was seeing were suffering from like lifestyle-related disorders, more or less related to, to how and where people were living. And there's actually not much we can do about that. We, we, we can't do as a doctor very much about the life situation, right? Or the, the context a, a person is living. 
So what I started to think was that it would be better if we could reduce the need for, for people to come to the hospital in the first place, to, to simply put make it e- easier for people to live healthy lives in, in healthy environments, uh, not needing healthcare. And for me, the particular interest has been in, in uh, urban green spaces and natural environments and how that can promote health and, and prevent different diseases. Well, so, well, let's get into that then, because how can it promote health uh, using you know, nature and green spaces in urban areas? What sort of findings have you come up with? We, we often talk about pathways, the, the nature and health pathways, which tend to be categorised in, in physical activity. We know that people are more encouraged to be physically active if they live in green environments, uh, tend to be more social interactions. People can go out in democratic free spaces and, and hang out together and recreate. And and also just by viewing nature from, from the window, for example, um, quite a few studies have shown that that reduces our levels of stress, which is then uh, in turn related to many different chronic diseases and mental mental illnesses. And then we also have another pathway that we often talk about nowadays is the regulating ecosystem services such as cooling of cities and um, reduction of flooding and air pollution to some extent. That's quite interesting. Just looking out a window will reduce your level of stress. Does this mean that we should all be getting ourselves close to a forest as uh, as people tend to do in Scandinavia or or, or how do you you get around that then in big built up urban areas? Yeah, that's a good question. It's, um, I mean, it's all a complex issue. Thinking about how to develop dense cities, and and we we need we need uh, residences for for the increasing amount of people living in cities. There is a is a rule that uh, the Nature Based Solutions Institute in Europe has recently, very recently launched. They call it the three thirty three hundred rule, basically saying that we should plan our cities um, so that everyone can see from their window, from their house, at least at least three trees, which could then uh, relate to this stress-reducing effect. And then um, this 30, so there was three, and then 30 would be the, um, the in, in the neighbourhood. There should be a tree, can- three, a tree canopy of at least 30% within the neighbourhood. So that's important. Um, and that could that could then relate to the regulating ecosystem services and like, like the cooling and also social interactions in, in small pocket parks in, in people's environment. And then within 300 metres, there should be a larger green space space area like a park or something for people to be physically active and hang out together and so on. The reason I stress this thing with the neighborhood is um, because quite often we have had these, so those exist already, uh, like general rules that the city should have a tree canopy of a certain size. But if we talk about neighborhood, every neighborhood across the city should have this. Then we also reach this distribution issue. So it's not just certain um, wealthy, high-income areas that have um, access to the, to the benefits from trees and greenery, but that it's well distributed across the city. And Matilda van den Bosch is also in agreement about making cities greener and bluer for both a climate change perspective, but also a health perspective. However, she's also warning that this has to be done because climate change is a big threat to human health. One of the most important things is, of course, the heat reduction. By by 2050, around 250,000 people are expected to die due to excessive heat. And and we already see, you know, that the the, the excessive mortality or the mortality peaks are related to to heat waves that we see every summer in European cities and, and beyond for that sake. And uh, the, the, the problem with, with the global warming is particularly pronounced in cities due to, to the urban heat island effect with densely built areas and impervious surfaces and so on. Um, so, so it sort of says itself that if we can increase greenery and have more tree canopy in cities, 
uh, that would help cooling the city. And there's also lots of evidence that trees and green areas do reduce heat. And of course, this varies a lot with, with the climate zone and context and so on. But uh, roughly between 0.5 and 7 degrees uh, reduction, 7 degrees Celsius reduction in temperature can be achieved. And then it is important to remember that at a certain threshold, the, the, the relation between temperature and the mortality risk is significant. For example, during the heat waves in Europe in 2003, when a number of thousands and thousands of people were dying, uh, one of the studies showed that just by one degree it's Celsius increase in temperature, the, the risk of dying was more than 20% higher. So if you think by if, if we buy tree canopy can reduce the just one degree, we can save many, many lives. So add a tree canopy to this busy street and we're saving lives in the next heat wave. So how exactly do you do it? How do you add a tree canopy into a city and what else can you do? Baz Horsting is an urban planner at Suico and has spent years looking at this question. Well, Cole, in essence, I think the climate crisis is a health crisis and um, nature will be playing a, a very big role here. I think what we have to do uh, in our cities is to build with nature a lot more. We have to make our cities a lot uh, greener. And it also means, for example, taking into account aspects of, uh, of wind and water. Our cities are so dense, it's uh, a lot of times hard for wind to flow through the streets. And if we design well with wind, we could make streets a lot cooler in, uh, in summer. And if we, for example, in specific areas would uh, design better with water, the flow of wind over water um, cools areas uh, also enormously. But I mean, how do you do that? How do you change the city's shape so that the wind can can move through it better? I think that means designing the city with a radical uh, new approach. And in general, it means that we take much more care of our public space. It is difficult to make cities greener. For example, if you look uh, underneath the, the, the soil, there's a lot of cables, uh, a lot of ducts that we need for water, for sewage, for electricity, our internet cables. And uh, we have to design that really well. So there's enough space in the underground to have trees uh, be able to grow really large. There just needs to be a very common understanding of what is required to make cities uh, green. And generally means that that means uh, designating more space to public area. How much green area uh, or nature do we need to have within a city for this to work? Um, at the moment, the way we design our cities, roughly 50% of um, the area is public space. And I believe that's definitely not enough. I think we should add at least uh, 10% to our public space to make our cities resilient and uh, future-proof. Now, Baz Horsting thinks that this extra 10% is a minimum extra because he wants to see nature coming back into the cities. But with this extra 10%, he wants to see it being used for something else. There's now a lot of talk saying we should use every square meter really more productive and more efficient. And uh, I actually believe the opposite. I think that in our cities, uh, we should make more space dedicated for a purpose that we don't even know yet. 
And I think that's also what um, the COVID crisis has taught us, that uh, a crisis we can't predict and it actually uh, needs a type of space that you can reprogram, that you can reuse. I believe also that it has proven already that these spaces are important. In the Netherlands, for example, cities like Amsterdam or uh, Almere or Utrecht, they have areas available close to the city center. And because they have this availability of the space, they are better able to respond to the demands uh, now uh, than they were uh, 20 years ago. So Baz Horsting mentioned Utrecht and that it's using previously unused public space to meet climate goals and make the city healthier. Lot von Hoyedunk is the elderman of the city. Or a vice mayor, whatever title you want to give it. And like most Dutch people, she speaks excellent English but thinks it's no good. It sounds very Dutch in my ears, but anyway. <laughs> it all sounds good to me. <laughs> and von Hoyedonk is very proud of Utrecht's history. It used to be uh, a couple of thousand years ago on the border of the Rhine and, and people could cross the Rhine here. So that's why the Romans pitched up a camp here. After that, my countrymen, the Irish monks, came in, set up a church, then a cathedral, and that became a centre for learning. Uh, and that's why we have a university now the biggest one of the Netherlands. And then things went quiet until the Industrial Revolution and these days Utrecht is an important hub. For both railways and highways and now the fastest growing city of the Netherlands because of its central location and the many jobs. Now Baz Horsting mentioned Utrecht as a good example of a city that had available centrally located public space. Lot von Hoyedunk explains. In the 1960s and 70s, there was a lot of space created for cars. They even demolitioned whole neighborhoods for the access of cars. Uh, in the end, it led to revolt. The people really resisted it, and therefore it was not finished. So we had this half-finished highway in the middle of our city, next to the station. And now we transformed it back again to a canal, which it used to be. But there must be a lot of pressure there with the growing population. You have to accommodate more people and yet you're providing even more green space than before. I mean, there must be a, a battle between those two. I'm, how do you say, um, professionally deformed <laughs> in the sense that if I look at public space, I see so much space wasted still. For example, we have this huge trade market in the center of the city. And if you look at it now, it has huge parking space at all sides. So what we do is, together with the trade market company, is to transform all those public parkings into new city. So neighborhoods with parks and also a place for new jobs. And the roof of the new buildings are going to be a kind of park, maybe also a space for sports. So if you look at with different eyes to the same space, you can get so much more out of it. And especially traffic takes up so much space, car traffic especially. And one of our ambitions is that in 2030, it's more straightforward for people to take part in car sharing than to have their private car. And if you think in how much uh, hectares of space you can turn into green space, into playgrounds, into bike parking, these are really high numbers. 
really, really interesting. How will you manage, though, also to, to make it more or easier for people to want to be to have car sharing than to have their own car? That's a, that's a big behavioural change. I'm afraid that this is a this should be a stick and carrot approach. Um, so we obviously have in parts of the city, not everywhere yet, but we have paid parking. But we are, for example, also developing new parts of cities. For example, the Merwedekanaal zone. It's a new district of 10, 12,000 houses with only 0.3 parking spots per house. So that means more or less three houses sharing one car. A small part is private car, but there is a huge car sharing scheme there as well, apart from great uh, cycling facilities, pedestrian facilities, a new uh, light rail line. And in combination, yeah, this package deal of very low car use next to complete carless public space. So you give something back. So in, in new parts of the city, this is obviously you, you can start fresh. But also in existing parts of the city, we really use the, the stick and carrot approach. But beyond all of that, there are several other things going on as part of their green strategy. They're, they're creating a city where there's access to green areas on the road that you live and having a park nearby and even bigger parks in the vicinity and then finding green and blue routes to take you out of the city. And in real concrete terms, they're right now greening the roofs of houses, for example, and they're hoping to see that escalate. Yes, I wouldn't say that it's super big, but it's increasing rapidly, uh, so exponentially, I would say. I mean, with um, solar panels, uh, we have actually pretty good results. I think now 25% of of the roofs in, in Utrecht has solar panels, so that's very positive. And if greening of roofs can take the same lift off, I would be really happy. Um, once there were new bus stops needed, we tendered it and asked the market who can uh, deliver us the most uh, sustainable bus stops. And then in the end, the company won that made bus stops with green roofs. So we have now bus stops in the entire city with green roofs. Um, and well, you know, the asking the question and also challenging market parties to um, think with us how we can in all our little decisions we can uh, involve green and sustainability and beyond that there's also cycling the dutch have a long tradition with cycling and in utrecht they have 32,000 indoor public bicycle parking spots and we are still building because we need we think we need another 10,000 and we are looking for new space to do it because you see if you make some attractive arrangement people can park their bike and are very near to the to the platforms of the train so it's a very smooth connection so if you make this attractive you see that people are going to behave in this way and also make these kind of choices Andreas Jelenhammer you're back we've heard our speakers are you optimistic then that we can improve our cities in the right way in light of climate change? Uh, it was a great set of speakers today, I think. And my main takeaway is that we know what to do and, and we have reached the tipping point for change. It will happen. The, the, the challenge is that we have a very short time to do this in. We need to acknowledge that. Uh, it would have been better if we did this 20 years ago, but cities are taking the lead now in climate transition and they have set ambitious goals and they start to align and implement them. 
Uh, we just need to get the work done. Now, you mentioned at the very start of this podcast, it's about getting people to work together and not work in silos. And, and this has mm. come across. So, I mean, how do we get everyone to work together? There are good tools for, for collaboration nowadays. And at Sweco, we have our own Symbiocity toolbox that has proven to be a, a very good method to help cities transition towards sustainability. And there are other ways as well. Uh, what we need to do is to be really early at the scene, so to say. And we need to have those common agreed upon goals that, that uh, citizens can, can really be inspired by. Because then uh, this is only a, a method and a means to reach what has been agree- agreed upon. Uh, the trick is not in, in technology or, or, or even financing, I would say. And now we've also heard from this podcast about the initiative to have 100 climate neutral cities within the EU by 2030. And mm. given the speed constraints that you're talking about, I mean, can that happen? And, and if it does, what sort of effect do you think this will have on cities overall? I think we can do it. Uh, energy, mobility and, and the buildings, they, they are the main city flows here and, and waste maybe. We, we know how to, to fix it. The challenge is, is uh, to do it really fast. And uh, I think if we reach 100 climate neutral cities, then I would be very optimistic about the, the future for the rest of our cities. It means that we can, can start our copying machines and, and implement the same kind of medicine for other cities. Cities are, are great in that way. They both like to compete and to cooperate and, and they can inspire each other in the race to, to zero carbon here. So if we look ahead to 2040 and the EU is filled then with these climate neutral cities, what will those cities look like? Uh, that's a good starting point, I think, for the work today, to have that, that view and that picture in, in, in your head. At uh, 2040, we are even 10 years after when we should have implemented the Agenda 2030 and the SDGs. So cities then are, are climate neutral and, and sustainable as a whole. And that will be great places to live for, for everyone. Today's problems and, and annoyances with traffic and pollution will be much lower. And if we do adaptation right, we would have reached more resilient cities, as I said, that can handle more stress. Uh, the cities will be green and healthy and, and filled with uh, a good, the good life, culture, diversity, interaction. Of course, there, w- there will always be challenges in cities and new ones for sure will, will come. I think the pandemic showed that. Uh, but I think also the, the goals are very inspiring and, and worth working for. And ironically, if we pull this off, the, the climate crisis might actually have been a, a springboard towards reaching them. So as Winston Churchill said, never waste a good crisis. Andreas Jelenhammer, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. You've been listening to the Urban Inside podcast from Suico. If you've any questions or feedback, please mail to urbaninsight at suicogroup.com. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 